0: Hello everyone, it is Tuesday, October 13th, was a very busy weekend and the drama continued into yesterday, so in this episode I want to talk a little bit about um, both this Denver Antifa rally. Um, This is actually a pro-Trump patriot rally uh, that was then um, a, a lot of local Denver chapter Antifa groups decided that they would call that a fascist rally, and um, they successfully did uh, rally the Antifa to come out, and uh, one of the people who came out shot and killed a Trump supporter. So um, that uh, is not a good look. This also—the interesting part of this Denver rally— that happened was that the person who killed the Trump supporter was employed by News 9, or sorry, 9 News in Denver, uh, TV station, it's an NBC affiliate in Denver, uh, call letters are KUSA, and um, they had hired this person to be security for one of their reporters, and um, very interesting circumstances here. Of course, everyone has dug through the shooter's social media history. He is a raging leftist uh, in every regard. Um, It was someone who uh, has called Trump every name in the book very publicly on social media. Um, Now turns out, you know, a lot of research has been done into how this could have happened. (laughs) And, uh, What has happened in the days since this uh, shooting, because, you know, remember again, Charlottesville, something that we must never forget. uh, Three years later, uh, the grand total of one person that was killed in that. Uh, However, when it is a Trump supporter who is murdered uh, point blank range with a pistol, that is someone that does not should not even be covered in the media. So, um, and it hasn't been. This has been something that has been largely ignored the same way they cover up when there is a, uh, you know, 50 people shot in Chicago over a weekend. it is not useful to the narrative, and so, therefore, it is not used by the corporate press, which is the enemy of the people. So, um, KUSA hired this security guard from a company called Pinkerton. Um which offers security services. Now, the way this is happening now in, in the press is basically since all of these rallies started, all of the Black Lives Matter rallies started um, or protests started, and the riots and the violence, all of the corporate press, which has been insisting these are peaceful protests, all of the corporate press has been sending security guards with their reporters. Uh, the security guards are often armed, um, and licensed to carry a weapon, to, in order to protect the reporters. So you immediately have what I think is just the delicious irony of the corporate press insisting that these riots are not riots, but instead peaceful protests while they have started a new policy, and, and many, many news stations have done this, and the network news has done this as well. Um, I know people who work in local news. I know people who have uh, gone out with these security guards. uh, I know people that work in national news that have gone out with these security guards. So this is a regular thing that is happening. Um, Now, the company Pinkerton, which hires the security guards, at least we believe this to be the case per... Uh, what has been reported on so far with regard to to uh, Nine News uh, and NBC and how they hired this person. They went to this company called Pinkerton and said, we need security detail for such and such dates. You know, we're going to go be covering such and such things. Uh, Pinkerton then links them up with um, what turns out not to be one of their employees – but a subcontractor, some other third-party company that Pinkerton now is refusing to release. So we don't actually know the name of the company that supposedly employed this security guard. However, we know that the security guard was not licensed to be carrying a handgun and that he was not, in fact, licensed at all as a security guard. So there are at least three companies that failed to check on the person that they were hiring to protect their own reporters here. And what essentially happened was uh, someone who is an Antifa sympathizer was allowed to come along with a news reporter um, into the middle of the action and then had the perfect circumstance because, you know, reporters are looking for people who they can denigrate – on the news that they put together. They want the ugliest people on the right, and then the most pleasant, you know, preferably uh, maybe a four-year-old who's really cute (laughs) on the left holding a sign that says, you know, don't kill me or something like that. Um, That's the formula for what we look for. So they are going into, you know, when there's, there's this chatter about you know, the white supremacists and how dangerous they are and how they're actually the way bigger threat than anyone on the left. That's not true. You know how we know? Because the reporters go to the most dangerous people on the right every time. Every time. The reporters are not afraid of the most dangerous people on the right. They don't get beat up. They, don't, they might get chanted at. Someone might chant fake news at them. But they are not uh, in any physical danger. Uh, we see this happening when the uh, media even goes and interviews someone like the Proud Boys, who we've been told are, you know, uh, Satan incarnate, and um, which of course is not the case. Uh, and, uh, you know, they are always asked to condemn white supremacy, which we are told is the thing motivating uh, what all of these right-wing groups are the reason that they are so murderous and vile and violent is because of white supremacy, and then they go and interview them, and these groups say, no, we condemn white supremacy. And the media says, well, uh, they condemn it this time, but next time we're going to ask them again. And it's it's just insanely um, disingenuous and dishonest. So... That's what the, uh, the formula for this is, and when you have a security guard who not only has huge Antifa sympathies, I mean, he followed Antifa, Antifa accounts on his uh, Twitter account, so you can actually go and see uh, many of the people he was retweeting and liking the posts of, and following, and um, he was extremely anti-Trump. He had called Trump a racist many, many times. Um, said he was a danger to democracy, and you know all of all of all of the cliche bumper stickers that uh, have been programmed into the corporate press, into the cathedral. And he's echoing all these things. So if we're really going to draw a conclusion from this, and I, I think there are a couple that we can draw. One of these is the very corporate press that poisoned this guy ended up hiring him, bringing him out into the center of uh, some conflict between groups, uh, which appeared to be uh, completely verbal, um, and then he murdered someone. So I think it's easy to say that this guy is... The bad, the bad uh, actor in this this circumstance, the the uh, security guard. But it's also pretty easy to make the case that this is the corporate press responsible. They've been ginning up this kind of anger that is not present on the right. I mean, they accuse Donald Trump of of uh, of fomenting hate all the time, and the reality is you don't see this. You don't see any... You've never seen a Trump rally where, you know, they start chanting something that is hateful, you know? Like, the closest you can get is maybe when they have chanted lock her up, which is kind of a joke at this point because it's been around for four years. It's kind of like build the wall. It's just one of these phrases. Um, If you wanted to take the, the... Extreme leftist position, lock her up, is a crowd demanding someone be imprisoned. And by the literal definition there, I think that's a problem. Um, I also think there's no question that Hillary Clinton should be locked up, <laughs> in my in my mind. I mean, you know, she deserves a fair trial and all of that, Um But let's be honest, no Clinton is ever going to get a fair trial. They're going to get a trial that is um, extremely advantageous to their position because they have such influence. So this is part of the whole idea of the swamp and trying to fix this is these people are um, ingrained in the ruling class. And, uh, and, you know, I, I don't even like to talk about classes, you know, political classes as much, but um, there is clearly a kind of northeastern Washington, D.C. based cabal that has enormous influence and the ability to shape a lot of policy around the entire country and even the world. And uh, these are the people who encourage the United States to go to war. Um, They're doing it now with, uh, you know, over the weekend, there were Press out loud. Remember, um, there when when Richard Spencer, the noted actual white supremacist, when he said in 2016 or 2015 that he liked Donald Trump, he was invited on CNN. He was on. Um, uh, he was interviewed by almost every outlet about this, and uh, Trump was asked to condemn this, and he did. And Trump did. Um, About, what, maybe four or five months ago, Richard Spencer came out and said that um, he did not believe Donald Trump was running the country the right way and he's going to be voting for Joe Biden. And um, I counted a grand total of two media outlets that even covered that, whereas, you know, Richard Spencer on the other side supporting Trump was covered by hundreds. So you have a huge double standard that's taking place here. Now, over the weekend, the Taliban announced that they would support Donald Trump over Joe Biden. And the left, well, who used to be the left, remember when the left was pro-peace and (laughs) anti-war? The left jumped on this and said, wow, you know, how can Trump be president if the Taliban supports him? you know this whole kind of like anti anti-terrorist sentiment again now look trump has maybe had no bigger boast than having killed with by drone strikes and and boots on the ground uh leaders of isis that's kind of trump's biggest brag it's that's, that's arguably one of the biggest things he's actually accomplished you can talk about you know how how important his um posturing has been to achieving other, certain other things. But in terms of actual things he has uh, taken action on, I think the killing of uh, uh, Baghdadi, al-Baghdadi, is one of the most um, positive things that that many of his supporters think that he has done. Um, it's also hugely... I mean, that's that's not a condemnation of the war machine, uh, the murder machine in the federal government. Um, that is actually something that encourages that. Killing the leader of ISIS is something that, um, you know, you would think that all of those military people would take pride in and say, look, we are—look, uh, what we're doing is working in building bases in other people's countries and then— um, going after their, their, uh, their leaders, you know, arming some rebels to try to beat whoever's there. And then in 10 years from now, we're going to turn on those rebels and then it'll be war with them. And that's kind of how it's happened with Al Qaeda and the Taliban and, um, and ISIS most recently, you know, all the weapons these guys have are from the United States. Uh, so thank you very much, policymakers. And, um, Uh, Dave Smith has a great uh, podcast called Part of the Problem, which I would highly recommend. And one of his lines that's in his kind of opening theme song is, uh, if you want to know who our next enemy is, look at who we're funding now. And that has been true for decades. Now, when the Taliban comes out and supports Donald Trump, we need to understand what the context is around this, because this obviously is, did not just happen by itself. This, you know, there are factors that the Taliban used to decide that, and, and it wasn't even kind of like a full-throated endorsement. It was a, uh, we would rather prefer this guy over this guy. Um, and it wasn't like we endorse Donald Trump for president, because obviously no, but that carries no weight with anyone. So this is not an endorsement the same way that, you know, you might have a, uh, a famous person or organization come out in support of, you know, Donald Trump. This is not like the, the uh, you know, police officers association coming out to support Trump. This is, um, we don't like either of them. We hate them, in fact. They are America. They've, they're bombing our countries. We're against whoever becomes president, but we would um, prefer it be Donald Trump. And the reason the Taliban said this is because Donald Trump is saying— he plans to bring everyone home from Afghanistan, all the soldiers home from Afghanistan, which the murder machine in the federal government is highly opposed to because not only does that cut off power and the ability to essentially, um, well, I mean, essentially extort the leaders of other countries with the threat of, Violence coming in and screwing up the way that they run their country and potentially even overthrowing their leaders, which is what the U.S. has done for decades. Um, but this is also, you know, imagine if you're the Taliban struggling for power in a in a region for two decades and three decades, and then the president. Of the main people that have been fighting against you says, we're going to bring all of our guys that are there back home. Of course, if you're the Taliban, you're going to say, oh, uh, I hope so, because then we can, you know, squeeze in there and have some more influence in the world. Now, look, you can make the the neoconservative argument that that's irresponsible. Um, you know, it's created this vacuum and then the Taliban can come in there and they can fill that and they can create all kinds of problems and, you know, whatever. We've, we've heard this whole thing before. May or may not happen. Um, usually it doesn't happen the way that that is portrayed. You know, people talked about there being a, a huge slaughter of the Kurds when uh, Trump removed troops, uh, what, six months ago or so? And that never happened. That was a big issue because the war machine, the murder machine was uh, actively trying to subvert that decision. So, you know, all kinds of CIA spokespeople were out in the press talking about how dangerous this was. And, you know, of course, because it's anti-Trump, all of the press picked up on this. And, you know, look, the press is always pro-war, as much as they pretend not to be. Uh, there's, uh, there's tremendous money to be made from war, and the corporate press is one of the people that gets paid. So this is um, this is you know something that they are in support of historically. You can go back to to the New York Times um, in the early 1900s and World War One and World War Two, and they are urging people to go to war. And uh, by the way, all of this talk about the Holocaust in World War Two—that was never the reason that the New York Times wanted to go to war. In fact, they they had it out against the Jews too. <laughs> so, uh this was very much that was an afterthought. This was very much a uh uh you know, this is you know, they they were anti-Hitler. They were pro um uh communist Russia at the time. And uh they wanted the US and communist Russia to align. You know, this obviously there's there's a whole history to this. I don't want to get into all of this or or misspeak in some way and be beside the point, but all of that leads us to now where you have Donald Trump essentially gutting the military in many ways. Even though he's building up the power, the overall power of the military, he it, it's it's less involved. It's kind of like the old Teddy Roosevelt thing, you know, uh, speak softly and carry a big stick. And Donald Trump is is you know building a big stick, the biggest stick. He, he's, he's, uh, he's really trying to uh, make it clear that America is a dominant force that can will its way to whatever it wants, but it won't. It's going to play fair. And um, that's, a, that's a really strong diplomacy approach, uh, as opposed to negotiating with even the poorest and least capable countries and, you know, pretending that this is all fought with lawyers. And what happens then is you have all of the poorest countries that essentially have equal footing, even though they are, you know, have very little to offer. And, um, and so you end up just, ble- you know, the richest companies, uh, uh, countries end up bleeding out money. Um, Donald Trump has basically said, I'm not interested in that. We should be about building us up. Um, and look... I sympathize with that a lot. Uh, I think a lot of his supporters do as well. Um, so, you know, this whole thing about the the Taliban coming out in support of Trump, I think, is uh, is is ridiculous. A little bit. It's kind of also one of those like, well, no shit, he's in favor of bringing the troops home. So, of course, you know, once you you mention that, it's immediately uh, clear that. Um, you know the reason that the Taliban might support Donald Trump, but uh, but yeah, that that's another thing that's happening. I just I want to dip back into um, into the uh, this security guard um, because I, I, I failed to to finish mentioning he um, the guy who was hired by the local news channel was not licensed. He was hired by some third-party company by Pinkerton. So you basically have nine news that's in a very precarious situation now, essentially responsible for the activity of this person whom they hired to protect them. Um, And you've had many of their reporters coming out and doing uh, the—and basically defending Antifa— Throughout uh, this process and and leading up to this process, they were a little louder, as you can expect. Some of them have have become uh, a little more subdued in their vocal support after uh, after they killed a Trump supporter. But uh, this is where we stand. We stand, you know, at a point where you can have the leader of the Proud Boys, who you know was on uh, Tim Pool's show uh, live stream on Monday night, uh last night, talking about um how they are against, you know, white supremacy and like all of these ideas. You know, this is essentially I think he's half black, half Cuban, something like that. Enrico Tario's his name. And um and you know, I I think Tim Pool was far from an intellectual. Um but even he kind of felt embarrassed to be like, I, you know, hate to say this, but because I don't love when people set people up into this question, but, you know, will you condemn white supremacy right now? And the leader of the Proud Boys says, yeah, of course. So, you know, what are we talking about here? Well, we know what we're talking about. We're talking about an election that is now three weeks away. Are we exactly three weeks away? I think we might be. Today's a Tuesday, so yeah, that sounds about right uh, maybe four weeks away, yeah, four weeks away, um, so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's basically, uh, uh, oh, no, it is three weeks away, sorry, can't do math, so, um, these are the things that are going on, this week, uh, Amy Coney Barrett is being, er, the hearings for her confirmation are starting, uh, on Monday, Kamala Harris, zoomed in and uh, delivered a teleprompter speech. Um, she w- wasn't even a teleprompter. She was looking to the left and the right of her computer screen the entire time that she was reading. So she must have had monitors to uh, one or both sides at, that she was reading. And uh, it's interesting how, you know, a lot of these senators are zooming in remotely. And, Uh, Asking questions, and um, and it was this morning on Tuesday that Amy Coney Barrett actually started answering some of those questions. And the big questions were, um, you know, Dianne Feinstein asked some questions. She basically said, you know, it's also interesting. All of the Democratic senators are coming in and saying, you know, uh, uh, you if you join the Supreme Court, you're going to decide on something to do with. Obamacare, and if Obamacare is gutted, you know, and then they have these enormous, you know, four by, what, maybe three by four foot portraits of uh, children that they're putting on easels behind them, setting up as they're speaking in this room so that, you know, Amy Coney Barrett has to look at, at, uh, at whoever this anecdote is that they're reading a story about, and it'll be, you know, some... Some poor kid who has a medical condition, and if the American uh, uh, Care Act, is that what it's called? Affordable Care Act, is um, found to be in violation of the Constitution, then that person would suffer. And it really is beside the point, of course, because this is um, not—it's— no matter what the policy, set any policy you want. There will be people who are harmed by that and hurt by this. Okay. Now change the policy. Tweak a little thing here, tweak a little thing there. There's going to be someone that helps and someone that hurts. So, this idea that changing some policy would affect one person whose portrait I, you know, had printed on on poster board and set up behind me, that that means that we can't consider changing the law is totally backwards and emotional manipulation. This is not fair. This is not um, in any way based in in any form of logic or reasoning or anything that even these politicians are are used to dealing in because um, they do have to go sell their new laws that they have and try to make the case for things. They know how to argue a point. Half of them are lawyers anyway. Um... So they understand how to make an argument. But when they're doing this, they're playing to the emotion. They're playing to the cameras. They're playing to the corporate press, which is the enemy of the people, have I mentioned. And, um, you know, Dianne Feinstein was uh, asking questions today, both about the Affordable Care Act and about Roe v.ersus Wade. And Amy Coney Barrett responded and said, listen, um, as far as I know, there are no— you know, cases that are, are active right now on these certain issues, um, if there are, it's something that I would look to the law and look to precedent. Um, I, my job here is not to be an activist and decide something in the, you know, the opinion that I have on a certain issue. It is to try to interpret the precedent and see what would be consistent with that precedent. And um, she was really pressed, several times by some different senators and she said, listen, I either this is an issue that could come up and my opinion is irrelevant because I need to be objective and consistent in interpreting all of the existing law or this is something on the docket already, and I'm sorry, I really can't say anything about this. It would be an abuse of my uh, position right now that you know I might come in, and be put on, you know, asked to decide some case, and you already know what my, you know, what my takeaway would be from something like this. Um, It would really be a disservice to the court. So I think it's been a really impressive showing for her so far. Uh, It's also been interesting, you know, to see a lot of these Democratic senators. Now, again, all these senators are hacks. Let's not pretend that anyone here is um, a good person <laughs> in any way, uh, with the exception of maybe, you could argue, you know, Rand Paul or, or Mike Lee are, are, generally good, uh, even then, I'm a little hesitant to, to, uh, jump on the bandwagon of a lot of these people, because, um, there's a lot of corruption there, and, I mean, even, even good people are, are put in no-win situations pretty regularly in Washington, so, um, so it's tricky, but it has been interesting to see the Democrats try to ask the TV questions that are going to get clips, that are going to be played on MSNBC and on CNN and will be proof of Amy Coney Barrett being a, you know, blank-ist, whatever the, whatever, you know, uh, racist. They asked her about George Floyd. Um, she said her she and her black daughters looked at this, at the video of George Floyd, and were really upset by it, um, but that's about as far as she went, and, um, and you know, all of these Democratic senators are really pushing her to give an opinion so that they can say she is unqualified for this court by expressing this opinion, and so far, she hasn't um, taken the bait on any of these things, and instead has cited previous court cases and said, these are the types of things that would be evaluated if this ever went to the court, but I'm not going to give my opinion. And it's just been perfect. So um, I think that, uh, you know, the attacks are going to ramp up. There's no question, but she's off to a a pretty good start. We are going to chat some more about this. There's no debate this week. There was going to be on Thursday, and we already talked about why Joe Biden dropped out of that. Um, because the uh, Presidential Commission changed the format to a virtual debate, and Trump said, wait, we didn't agree to this. So um, so the Joe Biden campaign actually was the one that, that dropped out. Uh, so this week is basically about Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, however, over the weekend, Trump did start—was it over the weekend? No, it was last night, Monday night— Donald Trump did ha- hold his first in-person rally. Uh, it's very interesting. He came out holding, I don't know, five or six uh, plastic-wrapped masks, um, uh, COVID masks, and uh, was tossing them out to the audience, <laughs> um, which obviously the, the corporate press, which is the enemy of the people, took the bait and uh, immediately started Uh, talking about how if Trump still has COVID, then he's just handing out COVID to the crowd that's coming to his rallies. Um, Meanwhile, the uh, Joe Biden campaign, Biden and and, uh, Kamala Harris both made an appearance in uh, Arizona. They had zero people attend this, and they then tried to cover their own butts by telling the... Local news in Arizona that they didn't really tell anyone about this, and it was just really meant to be an event, and they never really planned on people showing up anyway. So um, there's really no question where the excitement is here. Um, there's going to be a lot of talk about fraud ahead because you know the the gloves are off at this point, um, especially on the left. They want you dead, but will settle for your submission. And um, you should remember that as we get closer and closer to uh, decisions about the future of this country and whether we treat it as legitimate. Um, I think succession is very likely in the next few years, at least some conversations about this. And honestly, the way it'll probably come about, because I think conservatives are less likely to be radical— with, with some exceptions, I think that maybe, you know, if the federal government said we're seizing all guns, that is an issue where the right would say, OK, well, then we're seceding and, uh, and y- screw you. We're not giving up our guns. Um, but more likely, I think, is if Trump wins reelection, you will see the left make a push – to split off California so that it doesn't have to abide by federal laws, um, to do the same with uh, certain parts of the Northeast that are, you know, 70 80% Democrat, and, uh, and essentially create two separate, you know, subsections of the United States that then become, you know, they then have different rules. Um, you really need to convince the left because the left is much more incentivized to force everyone to pay higher taxes to fund their programs versus the right, which is much more inclined to not tax people as much. Um, so who stands to lose more in, in a secession? I mean, all of the lefties lose that tax revenue from conservatives. So how are they going to fund their programs That's why I think the left really needs to be the one to officially start this talk about secession. Um, And if they do, we'll be off to the races. And you know what? That'll be a good thing. Uh, Tuesday, October 13th, we will have more episodes later this week. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you soon.